Native Circles, a podcast for Indigenous experiences and conversations. Dedicated to Native American and Indigenous histories from Indigenous voices and lived experiences. We talk each month with historians and intellectuals committed to working with and for Indigenous communities, especially to share Indigenous stories. Within a circle of respect, trust, and compassion. I'm a Gaudi Shulgit. Good afternoon. I'm Sarah Newcomb, and I'm here with Farina King. Yate. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Farina. I'm chiming in from Jalagi Cherokee Nation and United Katua Band of Cherokee Country in Tahlequah. Ahiehe Wado. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we have a special episode about the book Returning Home Dene Creative Works from the Intermountain Indian School. This book works to recover the lived experiences of Native American boarding school students through creative works, student interviews, and scholarly collaboration. Returning Home provides a view into the students' experiences and their connections to Diné community and land. I would like to welcome the authors, Dr. Farina King, and the co-authors, Dr. Michael Taylor. Hello, everyone. And Dr. James Swenson. Great to be with you. I want to share a little bit about each of them. Dr. Farina King is an assistant professor of history and an affiliate of the Department of Cherokee and Indigenous Studies at Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. She specializes in Indigenous Studies with a focus on Native American boarding school experiences. Dr. Michael Taylor is an assistant professor of English and an associate director of American Indian Studies and an affiliate of the Departments of Global Women's Studies and American Studies at Brigham Young University. And Dr. James Swenson is an Associate Professor of Art History and the History of Photography at Brigham Young University. His research interests include documentary photography and the art of photography of the American West. Thank you all for being on the podcast today. Let's start with digging into what the book is about. Farina, could you give us a summary? Sure. This book, it's just different from a lot of other kinds of books because it is community-based and relies on so many people, not just us as three co-authors, but we collaborated with different universities, museums, of course, Intermountain Indian boarding school alumni and their families and Navajo Nation and different chapter communities within Navajo Nation. So at the heart of the book is us sharing the creative works of Diné students who went to Intermountain between the 1950s and 1984 when the school closed. And Intermountain Indian School was one of the largest, if not the largest, federal Indian boarding school in the United States with up to 2,000 students at a time. And it opens specifically for Navajo, Dene, as we call ourselves, opened specifically for Navajo students in that early post-war era in Brigham City, Utah, a couple hundreds of miles away from even the most northern part of Navajo Nation. And so we came together, which Mike and James I'd love to hear their thoughts about this, more of what they would like to share. But we came together with that overall goal 
in mind of returning home these Dene expressions of creativity and arts, poetry, paintings, sketches, also an oral history project, the stories that were shared from students themselves. And we wanted to be sure this was accessible to the communities. So initially, we designed a traveling exhibit to primarily bring these creative works from northern Utah, where they've been archived and preserved by Utah State University, to Navajo Nation and Diné and Intermountain alumni communities. Mike or James, do you want to add more to what the book is all about? I'll add just a little bit. Thanks, Farina, and thanks, Sarah, for having us. For me, the book is an opportunity to share the students' original voices without academic language and lenses placed upon the student voices. When we first started to come across student poetry, on my end, I worked largely with the students' creative writing. When I first started to read some of the poetry in the archives, we just realized it was not only a a really important aspect of Diné literary history that was stuck in an archive, but also of the broader Indigenous and American literary history of, of that time period. And so the book with the creative writing, the artwork, and the oral histories that Farina did, the real goal of it is just to allow people to encounter the perspectives as depicted by students themselves. If I could just add one more thing, I, I agree with Freed and Mike, and I echo also the thanks. I think one of the things that we all agreed upon was we wanted to be able to present the work of these young students and get out of the way. And so that was really a big hope that we could get this work out there, set it up, but then allow um, these young students to speak. Yeah. And I think something else really special about this work was how we were envisioning multiple audiences with it. But at the heart of it, this book wouldn't have happened if Intermountain alumni themselves asked us to write a book. And I emphasize that. Initially, we planned an interdisciplinary project for the traveling exhibit returning home to have its pinnacle exhibition at the Navajo Nation Museum. And James was very pivotal in that. Mike and I had never done an exhibit like that before. So James could maybe talk about that more. But when we started to bring the exhibit to different Diné communities or get feedback from Intermountain alumni and their families, that's when they kept asking us, are you going to write a book? And they encouraged us to do that. They asked us to do that. In that yeah. effort then, oh, I was just going to add about Rena Dunn, who became a translator, a Dene language translator. Because of that, we also wanted to be sure, as Mike said, this was beyond an academic audience and we wanted it to emphasize Dene voices and so Navajo language also became a key part of this project. And we worked with a Navajo fluent language instructor and, and speaker to translate parts and, and create parts in Navajo featuring the stories of Intermountain and the students' works. Focusing on the stories that they actually wrote and the things that they presented and expressed 
One thing that stood out to me just in the summary of the book is it says, despite the initial Intermountain India School agenda to send Diné students away and permanently relocate them somewhere else, Diné student artists and writers returned home through their creative works. It's a hard history learning that the agenda was to permanently remove the children and relocate them away from their homelands that they were able to reconnect through art and writing is beautiful. Were there any stories that truly moved you or stood out to any of you? I think I'm, I could probably speak first. So I, as Farina says, I kind of was working on the exhibition and it was a struggle to find a lot of the artwork. A lot of the poetry existed and we had venue, a good venue for that. And so it was a gathering process and in, as part of this curation. And one of the individuals that came to the surface as we were looking into this was a, a young Navajo Diné artist by the name of Robert Chi, who was born just in St. Michael's, just outside of Window Rock. And when you mentioned that kind of emotional tie, like it, the more I learned about this individual, the more I just wanted to his work out there um, and being able to find his work to bring it forward to allow, I mean, it, it graces the cover of the book. It also was the, some of his imagery was, was crucial to the traveling exhibition and to be able to present him um, and be able to talk to his family members and to get more of his story was really one of the great gifts of this project. Yeah, I'll jump on with that, James. Thanks for talking about Robert Chi. I mean, Farina has a lot more direct connections. Many of the students come from our home community and relatives and so on. And James and I, kind of came from the outside. But in the process, like James was describing, we all in our separate kind of ways, based on what we were focusing on, became intimately connected with some of the families of the students, some of the surviving family members of the students who we feature in the book. And so I'll, I'll tell just a brief story about one of those students. His name was Henry Tinhorn. Henry Tinhorn published a full book of poems at the age of 17 while he was at Intermountain. Before going to Intermountain, he had gone to a number of different boarding schools as well as the LDS placement program and had only spent summers at home for most of his childhood and adolescence. And then right after Intermountain, he joined the military and went to Vietnam where he passed away. And his was the first poetry that really just stood out as amazing poetry, not just interesting insights into the boarding school experience, but just really good poetry as well. And so I started to write a, a separate piece about him, just a, an article-length study about Henry Tinhorn as a way to try to introduce his poetry to the world. And in so doing, I was able to meet his surviving sister and found out she lives just five minutes away from me. <laughs> and we, we got to return some of his poetry to her that she'd never seen. She just remembered him writing poems under a kerosene lamp at home in the summer but she hadn't seen his fully published work as a student at Intermountain. And for the opening exhibit, we actually did it at BYU. That's where we were gathering everything and preparing it for the larger exhibits and other spaces around the Navajo Nation. And we invited his sister, Eileen, and she brought her other sister, so Henry Tinhorn's older sister, as well as her daughter and her granddaughter. And they all came and read Henry Tinhorn's poetry to the gathering there. And there were moments like that for all of us where this wasn't just some research project. It was a, it was a way of coming together as a community and celebrating the creativity 
of young Diné artists and, and writers in ways that will speak to and heal our ongoing realities of boarding school histories in these various spaces and families. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I really was able to connect with different people through regular reunions and gatherings that the Intermountain alumni have. And I think for all that people are hearing about Indian boarding schools and these different stories, it surprises some to learn about these active communities and how they are family to each other when they gather the kind of healing and strength that they have, sharing their stories with each other, reminiscing, even sharing, of course, the challenges and struggles that they had. And it was at those gatherings and through different connections, I was able to meet and talk to people about their stories. And it really brought the poetry and the art to life for me. One individual who is very close to my family is Jesse Holiday, and everyone would talk about his art, and he showed it to me. And I learned that Jesse also went to the Intermountain School when he was pretty young. He went to a lot of different schools, so he wasn't there that long, but I was able to hear some insights and stories of, of what he went through and just how he felt disoriented at the school hungry or or lonely even though you know there were a lot of other navajo students there they were just so separated and removed you know from home and a lot of his art is him painting the beautiful landscapes of monument valley uh sebi in this guy his homelands and thinking of his family and and he was able to return there but there's others too who i met like larina antonio stay is her maiden name and she has become really active with the different alumni communities and she wasn't she didn't identify herself as a poet or an artist but just meeting through her different people and hearing her story of how she was very nostalgic of her days at Intermountain and she wants to preserve those histories and those stories but she also was very forthcoming, I think, about how it was a time of her life trying to figure out who she was, trying to get by in life. And, and it was a part of shaping who, who she is. And she remained in northern Utah and you know, didn't return permanently you know, to Navajo Nation. But yet when I talk to her and meet with her, it's like, she didn't ever really leave Navajo Nation and she constantly returns. So it's not so clear cut of this returning is not a one time deal, I guess, of like they just return and and that's it. It's like cycles of ongoing connections and, and relations. And there's so many others. I, I was really honored to meet Rena Dixon, who also remained in northern Utah. And she took classes with Alan Hauser, and she specifically referred to that as being really important for her in recognizing Native arts and, and identity and what that significance to her while attending Intermountain, which, you know, Sarah, you quoted a very important element of our book, a central part of it is the agenda was definitely pushing assimilation. It was definitely designed to cut ties 
of Dene people and Native Americans from their homelands, but unexpected things happened than what those designers of these agendas intended. And listening and meeting people like Rena, yes, she did stay in Northern Utah, but she continued to paint landscapes in the Nepikeya, Navajo homelands. And she has, I heard recently returned to Navajo country. And so it's not again, you know, this linear to an end point, but it's all these cycles of journeys that is really powerful in all this. How does featuring the works of these student writers and artists support Native American history and studies? And how does it help people understand the history of indigenous boarding schools? I can go ahead and start on this one. Like Farina said, it wasn't just the the art and poetry, it's also the relationships that we've been blessed to build throughout this whole process. When we first showed up to the Alumni Association's annual reunion down in Wheatfields in the Navajo Nation, I brought with me an undergraduate student from Brigham Young University who was brand new to Native American studies. And what we encountered there as non-Indigenous scholars and students was very different than what boarding school studies have taught us to see or to, to imagine is going to be at a boarding school type of reunion. Almost the entire reunion was in Dene Bizad, or the Navajo language. So we didn't understand. Farina understood some. The rest of us didn't. There was singing. There was dancing. There were tears. A lot of laughter. I mean, and singing, um, and dancing, singing and dancing that went well, well into the night. Well, we, the, the, the old timers in the alumni had a lot more energy than most of us. We were trying to sleep through Navajo Elvis. Um, <laughs> And we didn't sleep very much. <laughs> Good memories. And that, that was with Terrence Ride. That, that is the student Mike is referring to. And he contributed uh, part of our appendix of, of his insights from that, too. Yeah, thanks for mentioning his name, Frina. He, he was one of the ones who actually got all of this off the ground right at the very beginning as a research assistant who started gathering the, the art and poetry. But to your question specifically through the book, our goal in this was not to go into this research and to this community of surviving alumni and their descendants or their families with any form of agenda of telling the boarding school story that a lot of academics and community want to hear. We heard that a little bit in some of the reviews of our book early on in the peer review process, that at times we featured positive stories of students' experiences. But our goal is not to do that in any way that is somehow apologetic for the boarding school agenda, but rather a celebration of student resilience, a celebration of community building, of the survival of community that students were able to create despite all of the agendas and the implications of those agendas that were enacted on them verbally and at times physically. And so what it does for this larger kind of conversation and understanding of boarding school histories, I think it's just that. It highlights the complexity of Indigenous youth and the resiliency of Indigenous youth to be able to build sustainable communities off-reservation, in assimilationist spaces that carry one another's grief and trauma and also continue to celebrate one another's successes and joys. And I think, I hope that the book captures that, but the reunions are the things that first brought us into that reality. It's not in, in any way negating or diminishing the importance and the realities of 
boarding school trauma. It's recognizing how communities, how, how a specific community has maintained community as a way of healing through, healing from, processing generations of trauma. If I could add just onto that a little bit, I agree with Mike. You know, when you read the poetry, you experience stories of racism and neglect and and poverty and many of the truths about and the realities of being Dene. But I also really enjoy just how it provides a window into their lives and how you get to see, you know, talking about, you know, having crushes and longing for a grandparent or just part of being human as well. That's one of my favorite parts of what we've assembled. I, your question, Sarah, I think actually gets at what else needs to be done. It's funny because a project like this is quite a bit colossal. You can think, oh, I'm going to write, we're going to co-author a book, but it takes coordination. It not just between the three of us, you know, which is like herding cats, <laughs> but also asking people to write a foreword like Robert Dodson, who has um, been a a leader, a president of the Dene Intermountain Alumni Association. And you heard about Terrence Ride, you know, writing apart and Rena Dunn's uh, Dene translations and my own father, Dr. Phil Smith, he helped with some of the Navajo translations. And then there were so many oral histories I did with students like Pauline So and so many others that I didn't feel like I got to really delve into each of their individual stories and even every poem or not even poems, some were histories themselves, stories from students, families and ancestors and paintings. There were some we don't even know who the authors are or the artists. And so I see this as an offering of getting us off the ground and opening to more projects and a resource helping to pave a way for others to follow us. And I mean, I was amazed that even my seven-year-old picked up the book and just started reading the poems and it connected with my child, you know, my children and it can be read and understood on so many layers. And I also shared the book at a presentation about another topic, actually, but uh, someone had a copy of the book and was passing it around while I was presenting about a different aspect of Diné history. And a Native American graduate student started crying by looking at some of the poems and looking at a poem of a, from a young Diné student who was writing a poem to his mother while he was away. and. I am a person who <laughs> I I cry. I'm a crier. And so that, of course, struck a chord with me of, of how this student, she's not Dene. She's from another people, another indigenous people, but it resonated with her because of what, you know, you just brought up about boarding school studies as Brenda Child, an Anishinaabe Ojibwe scholar has said boarding school as a metaphor. It now means so much to so many peoples. And there were the last 10 years of Intermountain were, were the intertribal years. And there's actually a, a strong intertribal Intermountain alumni who gather and, and we, Mike and I were able to meet with some of them last September in Brigham City. 
and hear some of their stories. And they really sacrificed a lot to paint the eye on the side of the mountain of Brigham City to represent their school and remember that history. And I mean, that is like Billy Goat hard to climb up that hill. And here you have elders who made it happen, got the permissions they needed, stood up for it, even when others were resisting and wanting to get rid of that eye. I mean, I that was another thing I, I learned about was uh, some of the locals want to get rid of the eye because they think boarding school is all bad, you know, just terrible, forget about it. But no, to them, that's a part of remembering and healing. They want that eye to remain there. And so they got the paint, got everything together and went up there. And in some of the responses to the book, some people have asked, there's some misconceptions too, or different things that I want to clarify is some people have asked, you know, well, are the student artists getting credit, you know, for their work? Are they being paid, you know, getting money from the book for this? And we are not making money off of, off of this book. We're actually hoping to be sure we make it as accessible as possible to communities. And that's hard. So, you know, thank you to Mike already of, of giving from his research funds to get books to some of the narrators of oral histories who shared their stories with us. But that's something we're going to have to continue to pursue if people listening want to support getting copies of this book to especially Diné communities and boarding school survivors and descendants. And, you know, for those who don't want to be called survivor for whatever reason, alumni, right? And then another response has been, well, what about the intertribal students at Intermountain? What about them? Are, are they forgotten? You know, why isn't anyone working on their stories? And I would like to say, you know, there are more projects coming and this is a beginning, but it takes a lot of work, a lot of collaboration and effort. And I am certainly supportive of that. And it's not for me, just here's a book, let's move on. But as Mike said, it's a lot about relationship building and sustaining. And so I'm really excited that, you know, this is a stepping stone for more conversations and more that needs to be talked about with boarding schools and Intermountain even. Just a final note with that too, Sarah, the, I guess the final part to answering your question is that this book offers one of very few glimpses into the later boarding school years. Much of the boarding school scholarship to date focuses on, on the earlier, better known schools. And this is one of the few that begins to have conversations about what it looked like after World War II. What did it look like when the American Indian movement was showing up at boarding schools to protest the schools or to recruit students to join AIM? So it opens up a, a longer conversation about the changes, the possibilities, the intersecting public policies. What are boarding schools when we talk about termination policy? So this book begins to have some of those later boarding school types of conversations. Thank you, Mike. I think comment that I have, Farina, you were talking about the elders hiking up this mountain to paint the eye. And one thing that I think is important for people to understand is that indigenous history has been plagued by erasure. And whether the history is good or bad, it is important to the people that it's remembered, that it's not invisible, that it's not erased. 
So it's beautiful picturing the elders hiking up that mountain. I also want to add that what I love about what you've put together here is that it captures children's voices or youth's voices. I'd like to know what it meant to each of you personally to be a part of this project. Well, I I did want to add that uh, what's really frustrating for me over and over again with boarding school studies is whenever somebody asks, was boarding school bad or good? And that question is still asked. I've seen it prepared by teachers in curriculum and they'll show them different primary sources and they might reframe it. They might say, did the boarding school benefit? Was it a benefit or a detriment? But the benefit, right, can be equated with good and the detriment can be equated with bad. And it's just all mixed. And even with Intermountain, like I said, for me personally, I feel, oh, it can be so overwhelming. It can be really difficult to explain. But I feel the more I learn, the more I don't know, like the more I realize I have to keep learning, even just about this one school, not to mention that I've started to learn about Chamawa, uh, Chalaco, or Crown Point Boarding School and Navajo Nation, all these different schools, Carlisle, right? And then Intermountain, and, and they're all so different. And the people who go there are so different. So for me, it's just, again, having to come to grips, but also embrace the learning journey for myself and try to do the best I can humbly and, and honoring the spirits and ancestors and living people and communities and support them because, you know, while there are moments of, of the crushes, youth, adolescence, just trying to figure themselves out, there was a lot of violence and trauma that remains and very dark aspects, especially within our mountain too. There were, I don't even, people call them riots, but I think of them as resistance. And so it's just crazy how I've been stretching my mind and learning how to talk about this and how do I teach children about this? How do I teach community about this when it's not just black or white, good or bad? It's so much more complicated about that. And people want simple, you know? And so even with children, you know, you don't want to feed them the meat before the milk, right? So it's, that's something that I'm still grappling with, but I think I just am so grateful to be a part of this project because it's taught me a lot and how to take that step by step. And it stretched me um, in and led me to make such good friendships and to really support my community and their stories. And I just have really met people I love because of this project and I, I love them. And I care about them and I just try to, I try to do the best for them. And um, it's hard because maybe I know it's not never enough and maybe it won't ever be. But I think if we all just try a little bit, you know, it's amazing what we can do. And that's what I've been so impressed by in this process. Thank you, Farina. I think in, in indigenous communities, that question of, was it good? Was it bad? 
I, I understand where you're coming from on that because I see people who had good experiences and I see all the trauma from others. And I think the simple way that I've come to deal or explain it to myself is abuse is always bad. 100% cultural erasure is always bad. Shaming children for their culture, shaming them and cutting their hair, changing their names, forcing them not to speak their language. That is abuse. That is always bad. That aspect is never going to be good. They have the reunions. They have that love and compassion for each other and making space and compassion and room for all those bad experiences, but also making space for the hope, the human spirit, the love that that they were able to hold on to also is where it's like we're mourning and we're celebrating at the same time. And it's a heart-wrenching feeling, but it is 100% better than erasure and invisibility. Hearing their stories, hearing their voices, it's just heavy to carry and it's heavy to carry both, but it's heavier for them if they have to carry it all alone. And that's where this adds to the studies, this adds to the history, is making sure they don't have to carry those dualities and histories on their own, but letting people know it's both. Yeah. <laughs> it was horrific, but we can also celebrate that human spirit. And I also have to say that in this project, we didn't just talk to students, but instructors and staff different people working for the school were very important too. I mean, maybe James and Mike can talk more about this because I know both of them, they worked with and learned a lot from teachers and others, and, and they helped us to find different items. And, and some were Native Americans themselves, like Leo Platero, right, who James met. Yeah, I think, you know, earlier I mentioned that the work provides a window but I think this whole process provided a window for us because as Farina said, yes, we did gather and collect, but we also had an opportunity um, to talk to alumni as we've talked about, but also to do some of that work, to talk to teachers, to find to get parts of their story, to see how um, what they were doing, how that impacted students. And to your question, Sarah, I think, one of the things that I took away from this was that not only did that provide us a window into this important school and in this important period of time, but one of the great benefits takeaways for me was that it, it I spent time going to the Navajo Nation. I spent time moving this exhibition in a slow U-Haul, hauling all this stuff around for months. And so it, it brought us and brought me in connection with, with, um, people. I grew up in the West and I had, I thought I had connections with the Dine um, in the past, but this really opened things up and, and really taught me to see others in a way that I would not have had the opportunity otherwise. That's one of the, the real great blessings of this. And, and every place I brought the, we brought the exhibition, I was proud to bring it. I was proud to show what these students had done because it, it holds up well and it, and it provides this, um, great opportunity for people to see others and to, and to gain a little bit more insight into not only who these students were, but, but what this overall experience was like. 
James, I'm glad that you brought up the U-Haul. I think we need to bring up the U-Haul in every conversation. U-Haul tends to come up in every conversation just because those big murals don't move themselves. And so, <laughs> well, and you, I'm, and you I see mean, the landscape differently. Well, you see the landscape differently when you can only go, when there's a governor, so you can only go 60 miles an hour. So <laughs> it- uh, but I, I really mean it seriously because I think it speaks to what this project means to me. Um, at times, I think Farina did the busy work of keeping James and me on task and getting us to respond to emails and all that stuff. And James and I did a lot of busy work in, in archives and James in teachers' living rooms and things like that. And your question reminded me of a time when when my perspective shifted of what, what I might be able to do as, as, a, as a scholar, as especially as a settler scholar within Indigenous studies. So I actually, right at the beginning of my dissertation, I, was, I studied at the University of British Columbia, and I was doing some work with the Alaska Native Brotherhood. And I went to Juneau, not too far from your home community, Sarah. And I was introduced to the Alaska Native Brotherhood and Sisterhood. They were in a meeting, and one of them had welcomed me to the meeting and introduced me as someone who wanted to talk to them and learn about I don't know even what I was hoping to learn about at that point in my dissertation. And one of the one of the Tlinka elders stood up and he just looked at me and I'm like this 20-something-year-old white kid in Alaska for the first time. And he goes, why should I talk to you? And then he went on and said, I've been researched to death and I've never received anything for it. And I, I was taken aback and slowly kind of gathered the courage and said, well, I'm, I'm here in the archives for three weeks. What can I do for you? Like, what, what would you like me to do? And he asked to somehow make it so that the important things I was finding in the archive would be more accessible to them as a community. So I promised him I would take pictures of everything I found. I digitized their whole newspaper for them that was on microfilm and just tried to use that time doing the busy work that enabled access for them to the things that institutions have locked up in archives. And so I feel like this is the first time that I've been able to do a substantial project of making what I get to see within institutional archives and with the access that I have as a settler scholar, making that accessible and usable and enjoyable by the community, by the people whose, whose work it actually is. That was, that was made perhaps most meaningful and profound when I first met Henry Tinhorn's sister that I told you about. By the end of our conversation, we met for breakfast one morning. And by the end of our conversations, she kind of confided that she didn't want to come and meet me. She didn't want to relive her own boarding school experiences again. It had been a while since she had to tell boarding school stories. But that seeing her brother's poetry really brought healing to her and to her family. And it brought an aspect of her brother that she never got to experience because he was taken at such a young age and was always away from home during the school years. And so this project's helped me to with a lot of Farina's patience and guidance, help me, I mean that seriously, it's helped me to recognize my potential as a settler scholar in the type of community work that I can do if I am willing to put in the, the busy work to make it happen and to do some of the uncelebrated work like James's U-Haul driving that's, that's less about us and more about what we can hopefully make accessible to others. So thanks for that question, Sarah. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for sharing your story uh, from when you were attending British Columbia on my grandmother's side, where Blanket. So she ties to that community. And yeah, my people are from the British Columbia area, both on my Tlinket and the Dimtsian side. So thank you. And I really, like, truly appreciate that view of how to help and 
doing that uncelebrated work. And so moving into that safer space is, is truly beautiful and appreciated. Thank you again for having us. I'm normally the co-host with Sarah. So I appreciate her talking with James and Mike and, and them taking time to, to share about this. We also couldn't do this book without the University of Arizona Press and how well they have worked with us and all this kind of new and different approaches than other books. I, I love how they they got it, you know, with Dene Bazad and including that especially and being sure to help us with emphasizing different images and the formatting with the poem. So that was really awesome. And even, you know, discussions about what cover image and why, and they, you know, were willing to work with us. Um, and then Utah State University, they have the exhibit and it's going to be showing returning home in January. And they also are working on how to be sure to protect and preserve some of these incredible murals that James was talking about and having, you know, these huge U-Hauls to carry because they are they're pretty magnificent. You know, they're not little things. They, they, I think are, are treasures. And we're just so glad that this work has brought attention to that. And we, there's still a lot of work to do. So I just want to emphasize that is there's so many ways people can support these initiatives. So we are hoping to have a kind of website, like I'm talking to Mike more about poking him <laughs> of how to have a hub so people can learn about, you know, ongoing conversations, future reunions and gatherings, you know, Deb Holland, secretary of interior, she's launching, has been launching the Federal Indian Boarding School Truth Initiative, and, and she's collaborating with the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And there's really exciting collaborations happening. So I'm, I'm hopeful. And there's ways now, I think, for people to synergize, be proactive. But as Mike said, and what you brought up, Sarah, is to be mindful and considerate and respectful of, I, I think sometimes people act in a way of, they think it's enough to listen to the stories, run away with them, and they don't understand how they're perpetuating extraction and colonialism and violence in that way. They don't see the connections because maybe they're trying to get recognition as the author or something like that. So I think there's a lot of exciting ways of indigenizing academia and scholarship. And we need to acknowledge work like this. You know, people see these kind of projects as service. They don't help sometimes with tenure and promotion in academia. And we need to continue to have conversations there you know, with all these different groups and circles and, and teach people that kind of experience Mike had of hold on there, folks, this is the training you need to have. These are the protocols you need to learn from indigenous communities. So I, I really want to recognize and stress that. I think that's what I'm learning. And, and I 
I still have a lot to learn. I'm not saying I'm I'm a pro like this, but it just reminds me of my uncle Albert. Uh, he was a very important elder in my life. And this is about the time of his birthday. And something he always taught me is he was a person to humble me and to just tell me when I wasn't doing things with the kind of respect or if I just didn't understand things. And I think of him in, in those kind of experience where an elder did that for Mike and that's a treasure. That's a, a blessing where they spoke to you and, and to teach you those lessons. So I know with different universities like Utah State University, University of Arizona, Brigham Young University, my own Northeastern State University, you know, there's a lot of these academic connections because we're dedicated to learning and education, but we can do a need to do so much more with decolonizing and indigenizing and really supporting community-based work and not putting a stamp on it as a negative connotation of this is activism, this is advocacy, you can't do this. You know, I think that needs to be approached in a more balanced way. So thank you for letting me say that. I had to get it off my chest, I think. I really appreciate those thoughts. Thank you, Farina. So let's wrap up with where people can find the book Returning Home. Yeah, you can find that anywhere. Um, well, um, Amazon, also through the University of Arizona Press. We'll make sure to add those links to the podcast episode for anyone who wants to get the book. Are there any other resources that any of you would like to share? Mike and I, we're hoping to get a website going that features Inner Mountain. But in the meantime, the Utah State University, their library, this is really, you know, was a gateway for us into this. They have excellent digital archives of Inner Mountain. So that that is a great resource. And that's what Terrence Ride came across and kind of really was an impetus for us getting into gear with this. And then Box Elder County, and that's the Brigham City County area of Northern Utah. They Box, have, Elder, yeah, Box Elder Art Museum, thank you. Art and History Museum. Yeah, thank you, James. Yeah, they have different resources. They've done oral histories relating to Inner Mountain. There's been more conversation about it. So in different media, news outlets, recorded webinars, even other ones we've had where we've been able to feature images and some of the poetry. So definitely check that out. And I hope people can make it out to the Utah State University exhibit and follow, you know, what becomes of these murals to preserve and protect them. And there's different conversations about should they be repatriated or a number of people say they want them to stay in Brigham City, the site of their origins. So a lot of ongoing conversations. Yeah. Thanks at noon. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Take care, everyone.